will tell you the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will, will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the Peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because righteousness is for theirs in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 3 through 10. That was amazing. All right, so here's the test. If I just randomly pointed to somebody, could you quote the Beatitudes? Here we go. I'm about to point. All of a sudden, I'm seeing a lot of people praying. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I'm not going to do that because I'm afraid to put even myself on the spot. Uh, good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. And uh, we are enjoying our opportunity to be in the Word of God, specifically with what is called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, where it's in Matthews chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we've just completed uh, last week looking at the Beatitudes, which is the first uh, 12 verses of this sermon. And, uh, and so I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 at this time. Our ushers are walking down the aisle right now with Bibles. If you need one, just put your hand up and they give it to you. Uh, feel free to keep it if you do not own a, a Bible. So as we've been going through this, we looked at uh, the beginning of this series. We looked at this key statement that's found in the middle of chapter 5, where basically uh, Jesus says and confronts the idea of what spirituality or righteous standards that they were seeing at that time, uh, so during the lifetime of Christ, that was seemingly unachievable except for by the real religious elite. And that religious elite would have been called the Pharisees. It was, a, it was a part of the Levitical tribe and the priesthood and a particular sect of that group. Um, and so this group was known as being so righteous and, and pursuing the law at the highest standards. And so if you were to ask a common Hebrew, you know, who are the most religious of your, of your day? They would immediately say the Pharisees. They are. Well, Jesus in his sermon says, well, if your righteousness does not exceed, go beyond that of those Pharisees, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Which would be an alarming statement if you already felt like their standard that they're living out is way beyond anything I could ever do. And so the common people listening to this uh, message would have been highly alarmed. There were Pharisees that were also in the crowd that would have heard this. And they would have been alarmed because they were trying very hard to impress God. They were fasting beyond what other people would fast. They were giving beyond what other people would give. They would pray longer than what other people would pray. And all these things were done to make an impression or to establish a standard that they felt like would appease God. They're all hearing this, both the Pharisee and the common people, that that standard is not enough. It will fall short. But then Jesus has said this after he's already given the profile of a person who will not fall short. That honestly will be the ones that will be heard, that they will hear this affirmed, approved, or blessed is the one who looks like this. The one that God affirms. Clearly he's already established that the profile that the Pharisees were creating wasn't going to work. But the profile of the blessed one, the affirmed one, the approved one that the Beatitudes share, God says is perfect. This is the one that I, think, I believe will be affirmed and approved before God. And so that is taught. And we know that those things taught in the Beatitude begins with that person who acknowledges that they indeed are a sinner. That they fall short. There's nothing they can do to impress God 
uh, get that approval from God by their own righteous acts. And as a result, they grieve it. They mourn over the fact that they cannot achieve that and that, that their sin has caused them to fall short, which then humbles them. Because we see these Beatitudes as progressive. And so you see that it, that it says, blessed are the meek and affirms the meek because they realize that they are not somebody that can go before God and say, look at me. Look at what I've done for you. But rather are humbled by their current state and long then for righteousness, that right relatedness between them and God. But true to those terms, that begins this outward transformation from the inward work. So if a person's truly becoming grieving over their sin and they become humble, then they're going to want that right relatedness with God, which then God says will become right relatedness with other people. When this gets healed, the vertical relationship, so then our horizontal relationships become healed. Then you start seeing affirmed, approved, and blessed is the one who is then merciful. Because they realize that they've re they're an object of mercy. They've received much mercy from God, so they become merciful towards other people. And then their, their motives become purified because it's not about them. It's about being right between them and God and, and rightness between them and other people that their motives get purified. And then they become peacemakers, not peacekeepers. They, they realize that to just ignore sin or to ignore brokenness between them and their, their families or them and their friends, that that only perpetuates that, that sin or that brokenness to continue by sweeping it under the carpet and pretending as if it doesn't exist. But the peacemakers, willing to roll up their sleeves, acknowledge that there's a problem and begin to work on it. It may not feel very peaceful in the beginning, but it's the true process to getting to that kind of peace. And true to the, the progression of the Beatitudes, then it promises that, quite frankly, if you become a peacemaker, things are going to become difficult initially. You may actually begin to suffer for what you're doing that is right. And, and people do not like having things uh, exposed in them that's broken or not in good standing with God. And so there's a rejection of that. And so the peacemaker experiences suffering. And he says, Welcome to the club, because prophets before you experienced these same things when doing that which God wanted them to do. Which then brings us up to this turning of the page, if you will, in the Beatitude, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, where you hear the statement, if your righteousness is not superior to that of the Pharisees, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But if you notice... There's just one little piece in between the Beatitudes and that statement. And that's this statement of being an influencer. You see, if you are that person that's being transformed by that inner work of God that starts showing an outward manifestation, then there's going to be a, an outward experience of influence between you and other people. And then Jesus likens it to a person who is like that of salt or light. And so the description of a person whose heart then is affirmed, approved, or blessed is by God is the one who is commissioned to be an essential part of his mission here on earth. Salt and light. So let's read what this influence looks like, starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. Now, let's just call this out real quickly. I recognize that, generationally speaking, the term becoming salty is not an affirming term. Where it, it would be suggesting that you're being a little edged, a little uncomfortable, a little bit angry. And so when somebody calls you salty, it's not usually a compliment. So let's lose that modern expression of saltiness and take on 
a biblical one, where it's you are the salt of the earth, where it's truly looking at the redeeming values of salt. Because we are called, according to this, if we have had this inner work of God happening in us from poor in the spirit to becoming humble and then becoming a peacemaker, that as a result of that, there's going to be a cause of transformation that will allow people to come near you and want to stay, stay by. So Jesus begins saying, we're called to be influencers. And he uses the analogy of salt. Now, in this culture, salt and light had a lot of meanings that are still true today, other than what I just described as a salty person. So salt creates thirst. And it usually then causes you to want more. How many of you like a good ham steak grilled on a nice barbecue grill outside? How many of you like that? All right, the rest of you must be Jewish and you don't like ham. Well, I, I personally love a good ham steak. And, and the thing about ham steaks, when you cook it and you eat it, it's, it can be very salty, right? And after eating it, you find that you drink a lot. Well, um, it's, it's funny that we, we laugh about it in our house because we'll often grill ham steaks and, and uh, we'll laugh about the fact that uh, we have to, you know, drink a lot more afterwards. And, and I find that my wife doesn't go very far from the bathroom during those times. She's in the room this service. Last service I told people not to tell you. Sorry, one. Sorry, hon. But uh, we drink a lot of water, which then causes, again, the need to stay near uh, to that special room in your house. But in this, what you find with the saltiness is that you like it and you keep eating it and you want more. Let me carry this a step further. This happened eh, about two or three years ago where I was invited to someone's house to watch a movie. This person goes to LAFC and, uh, and they provided popcorn. They offered it. Would you, would, would you like popcorn? And I said, Yes, I would, I would like popcorn. And uh, a little bit, a lot. And I was like, you know, I'm kind of hungry. I'll take, I'll take a good amount, a good bowl full. So this person's popping the popcorn. I can hear it popping. I can, that smell is permeating. And it, you know, it's getting close. And we're about ready to start the movie. Then he brings out an even bigger bowl than I had expected. Uh, and, uh, and, and so now I have this popcorn in my lap. We're ready to take off and watch the movie. I put that first handful of kernels of popcorn into my mouth and it tasted like cardboard because it was popcorn that had no butter and no salt who wants that who eats that don't raise your hand because I don't want to go to your house if you're going to offer me popcorn and it has no butter and no salt I mean, I'm sitting there, and I'm, I typically am a, I'm a good house guest. I, I tend to be very affirming and try to eat everything on my plate when people offer me food. But now I've got this large bowl of cardboard that I do not want to eat. And I'm trying to force every piece of popcorn down. And when you don't want popcorn, it's already difficult to swallow. But when you don't want it, it's incredibly difficult to swallow. And then finally, I just couldn't eat anymore, and, and the bowl stayed mostly uneaten. Know what I'm talking about? Think about all the things that if they lost their salt, all of a sudden become undesirable. I was traveling on my way to uh, Harvey Cedars Bible Conference where I'm on the board, and I needed a quick meal because I, was, I just left a meeting, and, and I'm on my way for that two-and-a-half-hour drive. And, and, uh, and so I stopped in a McDonald's drive through and then I hop on the turnpike. I finally open the bag as I'm driving, and I know that's probably not what you should do, but I reach in to get some of those fries, and I put it in my mouth, only to discover that whoever made that batch did not salt the fries. Whoever thought the McDonald's fries were good on their own is a liar. <laughs> it was the worst tasting piece of chemicals I have ever had. It did not taste like potatoes. It did not taste like fries. So salt masked that gross tasting uh, type of long piece of string 
that's in a red box called fries. Salt makes the difference, right? Then I was at a grocery store, and I, and I tend to do a lot of the grocery shopping because it's one of the few places that you can spend money guilt-free because you got to eat. And so I enjoy it, and I have this thing about making sure that I don't have to double back and, and go to the same row twice. And it, it really makes me upset with myself when I realize I forgot something and I'm on the far end of the store. Well, one time I was at the store grocery shopping and I'm going up the aisle, the chip aisle, which is my kryptonite. Because I, I can be pretty disciplined on a lot of junk food, but when it comes to potato chips, it's hard to resist. I go to this place where my favorite chips are, and I notice that they're carrying salt-free potato chips. I stood there in disbelief how they could do that to something that is such a great creation that now you would not want more than one piece. I thought, I will never try such a chip. But then when I went to an event where you got boxed lunches provided to you and you you come to the table and there's all these different sandwiches that you know it says in this box is a ham sandwich or turkey and I grab my box and then there's random uh, some people would get a cookie for their dessert some people would get a rice crispy treat some people got Dorito chips and other people got just potato chips I got salt-free potato chips I felt like this is not the day for me when I get salt-free potato chips. And of course, I tried to trade with other people. And, and these are all pastors, and you'd think there would be kindness and generosity. None whatsoever. We all want our salt. Nobody will take a second chip. At least none of the people I like would take a second chip that has no salt on it. Who does that? Again, don't raise your hands. Salt has a way of making things better. It causes us to want more. This is nothing new under the sun. The same was true in the time of Christ. When something was salted, it was better. And so when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, it means that as people come near you, they're going to want more of what the substance of your life is. You see, Jesus is painting a picture that we're called to be a redeeming presence in our relational worlds. That those who come nearest, that oikos, those relational people that, that are unique to your world, that as they come closer and closer to you, they want more and more of what makes you. If your life's not salty, they're going to find them, themselves wanting in relationship, not being fulfilled in relationship with you. So they move on. Jesus is saying the person who is poor in spirit and then goes on that journey of God's transforming work is going to become an influencer that he's going to use to redeem the lives of other people. Because it's not only about your life being transformed, it's about the lives of others being transformed as well. And he's going to use his people that are in that process to be a part of drawing those to himself. Salt and a salty life, as God describes, is part of that equation. That as people get closer to you, they're not satisfied with just simplicity. They want to get to know the depth of who you are. But so too is not only salt something that causes you to want more or thirsting for more, but it also, especially in the time of Christ, was used as a preservative. They didn't have freezers or fridges to keep things, uh, you know, from spoiling. They had to use salt. They would rub salt onto meat to allow it to last for a while, or they would keep other dry goods near salt to keep all other impurities away. So when Jesus tells this crowd, you are the salt of the earth, they would immediately associate that it would cause you to want more, and it would also mean that as people are near you, they're going to discover that your life is thriving, not rotting. Your life is thriving, not spoiled. Your life is thriving and growing, not decreasing. 
and value. In fact, this perseverance is like this. Our lives as a salt, as Jesus is describing it, should be the type of person where your life does not reek of hypocrisy or have hidden alternatives, confusing values, or failing character. But quite the opposite. Your life is exemplifying wisdom in growing measure, that you exemplify freedom from guilt, that joy, regardless of circumstances, seems to always be your countenance, and intentional relational investment is what they feel when they get around you, that they're not rejected or withheld from you, but they're invited in. And that they discover as they get even closer to you is that there's a driving purpose to you. You see, that's what salt does. When it's not only causing somebody to want more, but they see that it's a preservation. It causes things to be healthy. Which is really the third thing. Salt heals. You know, we use rubbing alcohol or... or uh, Hydrogen peroxide to cause a wound to be healing, uh, to heal quicker or to have contaminants removed. Sometimes we'll put an ointment on that, that will help that wound to heal even quicker. Well, in that day, what was most accessible for healing a wound was salt. Now, it wouldn't feel good when it would be placed on a wound, but nonetheless, it would accomplish the work. So a person whose life is salty, as Jesus is describing, is not only going to be someone who causes people to want to know more about you and to have a little bit more understanding as to why you are the way you are, that as they get near to you, they're going to discover that your character is thriving and growing with greater um, clarity of, of high values in Christ. But they're going to discover as they're being around you more and more often, there's something about that that's healing in their own life. They're going to discover that as they get around you and that salt starts to rub off on them, that their anger and bitterness decreases, not increases. That they discover that peace and mercy are the things that begin to be the values that they hunger for. We discover that as we get near such people that all of a sudden healing happens between relationships. Reconciliation becomes more common then further brokenness. And then they start to see that peace with God becomes something that they now know. We are called to be a redeeming presence among our those who are in our relational world. So as people get near you, do they want to draw closer to you? Do they want to know and understand what makes you tick? Do they find that as they get near you, that you are living a life of growing wisdom and, and that your character is thriving? Or are they discovering a stench of hypocrisy, hidden alternatives, or confusing values? You see, a true person who is salty is going to be salty because they're in right relationship with God and that's transforming their character, and it will bring healing, not further anger and bitterness. That's what's so discouraging right now about the greater church, is that as people draw near to fellow Christians, or to Christians they may know claim to be followers of Christ, they're only discovering more anger and bitterness, which is what the world is filled with right now. So they're more repulsed, and they step away. Peace with God is definitely not what they're going to experience when they come near many of the people that claim to be followers of Christ. Reconciliation with others is not their experience. What they find is greater divide. A person who truly is walking with Jesus, humble in heart, merciful, pure in spirit, broken about sin and wanting to walk and run far from it, trying to be right-related between them and God, and then as a result, right-related between them and other people, true peacemakers. They're going to be people that people want to draw closer to, not be repulsed by. And they're going to find that it's going to be healing to be near them. But there's a warning in this. Look at how verse 13 concludes. But if the salt loses its saltiness, 
How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, some of you might be very strong in science, and you're just like, salt cannot lose its saltiness. It's a stable compound. So if you're geeking out on this right now, I am impressed by you that you know that. But let me tell you and help you understand why that is not inaccurate for Jesus to say. You see, the salt that was more commonly used at the time of Christ were found in salt marshes where there were other impurities attached to the salt. And salt is more soluble or able to dissolve with water than a lot of those impurities. So there's a compound left behind that you can tell at one point was connected to salt, but it's no longer desirable. It's no longer salty or it makes things taste better. It no longer has its healing agents. It no longer can preserve. Ultimately becomes useless. The people had that common experience with salt. And what ultimately happens with that leftover stuff that's not the real deal, it simply becomes only useful for making soil, dirt, hard and compact. And so they would throw it out in the streets, mix it with soil, and fill potholes with it. Or they would mix it with soil and put it on their roofs to seal up leaks. But in both cases, it's, it has nothing to do with the relationships between them and other people. It just becomes a cast-off to help on convenience, but has no redeeming value person to person. So Jesus' warning is this, that if we allow the impurities of other things to attach themselves to this journey that we have with Jesus, and we allow that to begin to cause us to go to the right or the left, and losing our focus in on Jesus' face, and letting him guide our every step, that as time goes on, we cease to be valuable to the kingdom of God. And what he says in verse 13 is, you're no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and made into pothole filler. Thus saying, those who are no longer salty will be removed from the mantle of God's work if we lose our saltiness. God is going to work on this earth with you or without you. Do you want to be stepped on or do you want God using you? For the ones that experience the salt of God, I mean, Jesus regularly says uh, later, and we'll find this as a narrative in Scripture, come, taste, and see that I am good. Jesus is the primary salt, and when we get near him, we're going to become salty like him. And when we journey with him, and we're staying with him on our journey, we will then be a part of his redeeming work in the lives of other people. But if we begin to say, wait, Jesus, here, you go the next couple days without me. I'm going to enjoy this over here. I'm going to start enjoying these privileges out in, in culture right now in the world. And I'm going to let you kind of do some of the things. So check out for a couple weeks while I take a vacation from you. As time goes on, we stop becoming salty. We're no longer a preservative for those around us. We're no longer causing people to lean in and want to be near us to discover why it is the way we are. And people certainly are not going to be in a healing process, being next to something that has no qualities that are found in Christ. Which then this statement becomes true. A person who loses their saltiness, their value as a redemptive influencer has ceased. A person who loses their saltiness, their value as a redemptive influencer has ceased. They might still be in the church, but their value to anybody else is gone. The best thing you offer is we don't have a leaky roof or we don't trip over the potholes anymore. But beyond that, 
no healing, no drawing in of relationship, nothing to observe that would say there is an opportunity to see a thriving character when you're walking with Jesus. Jesus goes on to expand the analogy when he says in verse 14, you are the light of the world, a town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. It's very interesting. I had two experiences in Israel that were very fascinating. The first one was that when I got to swim in the Dead Sea. You know, the Dead Sea is one of those experiences that if you've ever been there, it's, it will forever cement in your mind the uniqueness of it. How many of you have ever swam in the Dead Sea? Handful of you. It's amazing. You could be the most overweight, obese person in the world and you're going to float. You may not know how to swim, and you can float. It would be so difficult to drown. You would be forcing yourself to drown by going face first in the water and lying that way to drown. It's amazing because it's the density of the salt. It was healing. It caused all kinds of things to get better. You know, as I've aged over time, my skin now, I have to use lotion to keep it nice. So that my wife would want to touch my hands. I have to now put lotion around my ankles because they tend to get dried out, being underneath my socks. I now have moles in places I didn't have moles before. You're thinking, wait, wait, time out. TMI. I get it. We also get rashes more often. Things bleed more easily. Our skin tends to get more paper thin. But let me tell you, when you get into the Dead Sea, all things become new. I came out of that water, and for the next day, my skin felt amazing. My toenails were cleaner than they've ever been cleaned before. I know, back to TMI, right? But rashes went away. And my wounds healed so quickly. But another thing happened on that trip to Israel a couple years ago. As I learned a little bit more to appreciate this verse, you are the light of the world, a town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Because what I discovered is that every town in Israel was up on a hill. Because all the towns in Israel are ancient towns. And so they built the cities up on these hills for the sake of their own defense. And so at nighttime, as you were traveling, you could see the hill up in a distance and know that's Nazareth. And you're driving to it. Or there's Jerusalem. The glow of it being seen from afar. It gave you comfort to know what was ahead. To know that you were going the right direction. It was a guide, if you will. So for people that would travel at night, they would see the glow and know that they're on the correct road. I can relate. Growing up in the Midwest and particularly in the prairie, at night when you're driving on roads that seem to be always going straight, you would get to the top of a bluff and then you could see the horizon for miles. And I just, there was this one bluff as you're coming from the south to the north and we're heading towards my hometown. When you get to this bluff, you can see these patches of light off in the distance. And you know this patch over here would be Smith Center. Then you would see a little smaller patch called Agra. And then you'd see straight ahead Phillipsburg. And then you would see off to the west, Norton. It's an expanse of 60 miles, these towns. You knew where you were going. You knew you were going straight north. And you knew you were looking east to west. When my grandfather came and visited, he was a farmer that always used north, south, east, and west in all of his descriptions. When we were driving around Pennsylvania, I remember him just being so frustrated. And I'm trying to show him the beautiful area that's around central Pennsylvania. And he finally just blurted out, which way is north here? Because no road goes north, south, east, or west. Everything's at an angle or takes some of our highways. You can go north, south, east, and west on the same road that says you're going north. He was so frustrated by it. 
But when you grow up out there, you learn to appreciate the light of a town. You were not lost as long as you could tell where the towns were. You knew your directions. I remember going to college and there's a lot of things college students like to do to kill time, especially if you're at a small college. Like, I went to a university of about 3,000 students, but this university was in a very small town in the middle of nowhere. A lot of the students were from cities, and they didn't know how to have fun. So you teach them things like cow tipping, snipe hunting, and they get really excited about these things, thinking they're real. Some of you are probably getting your bubbles bursted right now. Snipe hunting's not real, just so you know. And you really can't tip a cow. And if you have, I want proof of it. But a lot of things tend to happen at night. And I'll never forget one night when as a freshman, a group of my friends that were upperclassmen grabbed me, blindfolded me and my roommate and threw us in the trunk of their car. Not a good idea. I get it. They drove us a little bit. We could tell we got on gravel roads. We got out, and I hear them get out of their car, some running around, and they open the trunk. They pull us out, walk us out, and then they said, at the count of 60 seconds, take off your mask and get back to campus. So we count to 60. And at the end of that, we discovered we're in the middle of a pasture with about 100 cattle. Staring at us like, you fools, why are you here? We're looking around, and my roo the roommate was from the city, and he was like, I have no idea where we're at. Meanwhile, I had learned over the years to look at stars, to figure out directions, and then I looked for glow, just on the lowest horizons, to figure out where our little town of Bolivar was. So we quickly got back, all because you knew to look for the light either the stars in the sky or the glow of a city far away. You see, there's something about light that says, if you're from afar, light is the first thing that can be directive to know where to go. So in this analogy of a person whose life is being transformed, as the Beatitudes describe, that when they, their life is starting to be transformed, people are watching from afar. And they see it from a distance. And they kind of have a sense of now I know where to go. And so they come in. So light is the first thing that draws you in. But then it's the salt that causes you to stay. You see, light is all permeating. If it exists, there is no darkness that can overcome it. That's the rules of light and darkness. The darkest of spaces, a pin needle of light can penetrate the whole. It wins every time. But the question is, if a person goes on a journey to see from afar and to begin to walk towards it, and they discover the person where the light is coming from, do they experience salt? Where they want to stay, they want to peel away the layers, to understand what makes you tick. Will they discover that your life is well-preserved, that there's something thriving. And will they discover that they're finding themselves healed as they come into the light and experience a transformed life that they themselves begin to seek Jesus? These are the two analogies that Jesus uses that says the person whose life is changed is meant to be an influencer, part of God's strategy of reaching others. And light is not meant to be concealed. Why do we conceal it? If it's truly Jesus is working in your life, you can't possibly hide it from another. And if your light isn't shining, then it should immediately cause you to ask, am I near enough to Jesus where my life is salty? Now here's the problem. Verse 16 becomes the most Interesting verse in the Sermon on the Mount when you consider what comes in chapters 6 and 7. In 16 it says, In the same way they see your light shining before others so that they can see your good deeds and then what? Glorify your Father in heaven. In the last part of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7, 
there is warning about showing off your good deeds. So why here does it say, in the same way, let your light be seen by others so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So what's the difference between this verse and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount? It's the final phrase. That when people see you from afar and they get drawn in, that they realize it's not you they're seeing. They're realizing there's a source in you that comes from other. And they glorify him who is in you. So glorifying God is the key to the proper display of one's life well lived. Glorifying God is the key to a proper display of one's life well lived. In other words, what you're going to see in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount versus this moment, living to be seen versus living to draw attention to God is at the heart of whether your actions are sin or they are something to be praised. You see, the Pharisees that Jesus is going to regularly point to, they were living to be seen and be glorified for what they were doing. Jesus is praising the one that says, I'm living different because there's someone different living in me. And God gets the glory. So the takeaways are this in the text. God's primary strategy in drawing people to himself is through the lives of ones who have been radically changed. God says, you and I are the salt and light of the earth. Yes, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But then he is the one that now tells us, you are the light of the world. I am the light of the world. So that people can see the light that is Jesus in us, be drawn to us, experience the saltiness of our life, and then go on a journey to discover Jesus for themselves. So God's primary strategy is just that, is to draw people to himself through you and I. Secondly, when living for Christ, expect people to come near. If you're genuinely living for Christ, expect people to want to come near you. If people are repulsed by you, you probably need to do a little bit of a heart check. Is my life reeking of something? Have I lost my saltiness? Have I become brash and harsh on my perspective? Or are they experiencing the peace that Christ offers? So God's strategy is to use you and I. So therefore expect to be sought after. And lastly, this is the key to the whole thing about the heart. We need to keep it about the glory of God and not about the transformed you. This is about the glory of God and not the transformed us or me. We've got to point them to Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I recognize that there are seasons in my life that I allowed a lot of things to attach themselves to my life and my heart. And as a result, I became less and less salty, less and less like you. And therefore, I repulsed people. My attitude stunk. I became more of a braggart rather than somebody who is humble that points to Jesus. Forgive me, Lord, for those seasons in my life. God, what I pray is that in this moment that we would all be willing to look in the mirror and be honest, is there a light shining from us? Is there a saltiness to my life that as people come near me, they want to know more what makes me tick? Or is my character so confusing that I repulse them? God, do a work by your Holy Spirit in your church today. And for those who have come into this room that don't know Jesus, I pray that they would see a light for the first time and be drawn in 
especially in a relationship with somebody here that knows you and is walking with you, and discover how life can be changed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? Come on, church. We're going to commit to shining that light of Christ. Be
So John says in his first epistle, this is the message we have heard from him and now declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all whatsoever. So if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have then fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So the statement of John is this, that if we are walking in the light as he is in the light, so we're walking in fellowship with him, then the manifestation of that walk and the reality of that walk is that we'll have fellowship with one another. Reconciliation happens. Peace between each other happens. Brokenness begins to be repaired and Jesus begins to shine more brightly in his church. That is the prayer that I've had for this sermon is that we will find that we need to draw near to the heart of God and rediscover the light of him in our life so that as people draw near to us, they won't be repulsed but want to draw in further. If you would like to pray with someone this morning about any burden you may have, any concern you may have, that's what the body of Christ does. We pray for each other. And we'll have somebody in the encounter room, which is to my left, as you go out the door. They'd be glad to pray with you on that. But perhaps you came with someone that brought you. Maybe you could sit down with them and talk with them about what's going on between you and God. Maybe you've never discovered what it's like to taste and see that the Lord is good and discovered a life that is healing, preserves, and it causes you to thrive. Jesus is worth your life. So in the name of Christ, I send you out to be light where people see you from afar, but then as salt so that as they draw near, they stay and want to understand more fully what Jesus can do in their life. Amen. Go as the image bearers of Jesus Christ not concealing anything, you're dismissed.